Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. Somalia is ground zero for an emerging trend in global affairs. That is the nexus between climate change and conflict. My guest today, journalist Laura Heaton, has spent years reporting on how climate change and conflict feed off each other in profoundly destabilizing ways in the Horn of Africa. She's the author of a feature story in Foreign Policy magazine that uses the work and life story of a British scientist named Murray Watson to explain how climate change in Somalia has exacerbated conflict, both localized and international. She explains how conflict and insecurity have inhibited policies to mitigate the destabilizing effect of climate change. In other words, the ways in which climate change and conflict have formed a symbiotic relationship in Somalia. Watson went missing in 2008 after being kidnapped in Somalia, and it was assumed that his trove of ecological research went missing along with him, until, that is, Laura uncovered its existence in an attic in the British countryside. It is a fascinating story, so stay tuned. Before we begin, a big thank you to everyone who's reached out to me in recent weeks with whatever is on your mind. I do love hearing from you. Feel free to send me your questions, your ideas, your thoughts. If there are people I should interview or topics I should cover, just send me an email. You can use the contact button on Global Dispatches podcast.com. And you'll also note that we have no advertisers this month, boohoo, but uh, hopefully you can make up the difference a little bit, at least by becoming a premium subscriber to the show, support the show, earn great rewards. I, I know I say that every month, every week, every episode, but it really does help support the show and, and help me bring this show to you every single week. So thank you in advance. Of course, you can go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to become a premium member. And now here is my conversation with journalist Laura Heaton. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So he was a British scientist who was working in East Africa throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And he came to Somalia in the 70s to start some work there and then pretty much stayed until the country collapsed in the early 90s. One interesting note about, you know, just talking to people about him, of course, he's been kidnapped since 2008. So um, I was talking to family members, to people who used to work with him. And it was interesting as I was thinking about the piece, like, is it safe to say that he was like, the like leading non-Somali expert on Somalia. And I, I ran this by a couple of the Somalis that I'd been interviewing and they all said, oh, he was the world's leading expert on Somalia. Like this guy saw parts of our country that we 
had never been to before. Um, he spent all of you know many years crisscrossing the country um, by plane and by by Land Rover, collecting information and. And mostly on the environment, but he also had really had a seems like quite a brilliant mind for understanding the broader picture as well. So, what um, was he studying specifically uh, when he was kind of crisscrossing the country and, and flying on his plane to to survey the country? What what was he looking for? What was he studying? So, his main project through um, most of the eighties was to put together the only comprehensive land survey that was ever done of the country. And basically what that entailed is that he and a team of researchers were collecting data at some 1,200 sites um, across the country and all sorts of information, like quite meticulous, down to studying soil samples so that they could document the composition of the soil, looking at how the land was being used by people, looking at what animals were present, what was the vegetation there, um, one of the fascinating things, especially for, I think, the ph photographer that I was working with, Nicole Sobecki, was that they put together an incredible collection of photographs um, as part of these field notes where they were um, taking, I think, a, a, about 12 or 16 photographs at each site to sh really document in all directions what the landscape looked like. So it gives us a really good sense of like of really what the whole country looked like at that time period, which of course is quite quite incredible today given that much of the country is an inaccessible due to um, due to insecurity and war. So what was the overall like public policy purpose of of taking this survey? Like why did he conduct the survey other than like for pure science of knowing, you know, what vegetation grows where? Well it's of course since I could never speak to him. I, I never have had the chance to hear directly from him, but certainly from the researchers that I've spoken to and even like reading the notes in his PhD. I went to Cambridge and checked that out of the library for a couple of hours. And um, I mean, I think for him, it really was about knowing all about all of the science. But of course, this this work was being done at a fascinating time period um, really for East Africa is the height of the Cold War. He was working with Soviet ma made maps and um, a lot of the funding came from the US government and from the British government um, who saw Somalia as a hugely strategic location for them in, in the Gulf of Aden and the Horn of Africa. Um, and, then, and then I would say the, the sort of third uh, motivation here was for the Siad Barre government who he was working with. Um, and this was, was the, the pro-U.S. dictator who ruled Somalia for, for many years before its collapse. Exactly. And he, um, first of all, it sounds like from many of the Somalis I spoke to that he he had a genuine, uh, President Sia Barre had a genuine appreciation for the fact that in a country of nomads, uh, the environment was going to be really determining whether people would live or die. Um, but then also, you know, he was a strategic minded ally of the U.S. government, and they did get quite a lot of money to to do this work on the environment. So it was really a kind of an interesting confluence of, you know, I think a lots of win-win situations um, that ended up generating this incredible resource of of environmental material, and and the resource was was lost as as you write, um, and and it was thought to be lost forever after right. he, after Watson was murdered in two thousand eight. Can you um, walk me through the circumstances of his murder and and what we know about it and and, and sort of what happened to the best that we know to the best that you've probably put together through your reporting? 
Sure. And actually, I should just say that we don't know that he was murdered. I mean, I think that was one of the really, you know, quite intriguing parts of this from a journalistic perspective was that he had been kidnapped in 2008. He was ambushed um, when he was doing actually another kind of land survey in southern Somalia, an area that was really crawling with Al-Shabaab militia and also just um, sort of clan militias that were competing for space. So it was a pretty volatile area and he was ambushed. Um, and as do, far do as you I, suspect that he was probably murdered, I think so. I mean, certainly, um, his family speaks of him in the past tense. Um, but you know, I spoke to, um, an acquaintance of his who, a British gentleman who got involved during the, the hostage negotiation. And, um, he mentioned to me on the phone, you know, I, I can't remember exactly what I had said as we were kind of signing off, but I, I said something about maybe sort of signaling the finality of it. And he said, he corrected me and he said, listen, like, you know, we, we can never give up on these people. Like we can never assume that that's what happened until we have the clear story of what happened and know that like for sure that he is dead. Like we can't lose we can't, you know, assume that he was and we can't forget about him out there. So that was also, you know, that was an interesting, an interesting perspective that actually I heard from quite a few people. Um, you know, even I say like his family, I, it, it was remarkable to me that they, they did speak with about him in the past tense. But then whenever you kind of had like a moment to reflect on it a little bit, people would say, you know, if anyone could survive in these types of conditions, it's someone like him. I mean, he, he knew this country backwards and forwards and had a real way with people that, I mean, it's, it's been almost 10 years now, but anyway, it's certainly, you know, the unsolved Mm -hmm. mystery, I think, is one of so, the things that really motivated me. So so what happened on, on the day that he went missing, let's say, and sure. was attacked? Yeah. So he was doing a land survey in the southern, southern Somalia, um, actually documenting the river uh, that runs through that area. It's like one of only two rivers in the whole country that is not seasonal. So it's an essential uh, part of sort of the sustenance of the country. So he was doing this survey with a team um, a small team of, of an engineer, some, a couple of scientists, and they, um, he was in the first uh, car to leave in the morning. They were doing this kind of leapfrogging approach to, to track their, this river. So he was in the car that left first that morning, just around 7 a.m. Um, and about maybe like an hour, not e maybe not even an hour into their journey um, south along the river, they were ambushed by a car that seemed to be laying in wait. So um, it it's opportunistic in the sense probably that this was a militia that got caught wind of the fact that there were some Mzungu, um, you know, like foreigners, white mm -hmm. foreigners in the area, but they, <clears throat> excuse me, but they um, weren't necessarily, they didn't have necessarily like major aims for him, but they wanted to, you know, this was like uh, an opportunity that they couldn't pass up. So anyway, this team of uh, probably around six gunmen ambushed their vehicle. Their driver tried to get away, um, but got kind of stuck in the, a ditch a bit. And so um, a, f a gun f firefight ensued. And during that, um, it, it, I understand that Murray Watson was probably shot in the arm somewhere. Um, so not a, necessarily a mortal wound, but certainly 
um, an injury that would require medical attention of some sort. Um, he was also traveling that morning with um, an engineer who was on the team, um, a, a young Kenyan man named Patrick Amukuma, and he um, was also kidnapped. So my understanding is that in this, the chaos of this gun battle, um, these two guys get kind of whisked into the other vehicle and the kidnappers make off with the two of them plus their vehicle and leave the driver and their translator and a couple of guards kind of in their dust on the road. Um, and, and that was the last anyone had seen uh, of, of Watson, right? Yeah, exactly. Even though there, there are some, some uh, hostage, some kidnapping um, and bribery funds that were, were, were being requested by the kidnappers, but those never materialized and no one really ever yeah. heard of, of him since, right? Exactly. So, right. so when he went missing, it was assumed, uh, as you write, that his um, just massive research that he conducted into the landscape, the ecology of Somalia was, was lost with him. Uh, but but what actually happened to the to that data? Well, in reality, too, it, it goes even a bit farther back. So his kidnapping was in 2008, but in 1991, uh, while he was working there, and the Siad Barre regime was overthrown, um, and in the chaos that ensued in Mogadishu at the time, um, all of these government agencies were looted um, and burned, and documents were were stolen and used for, I heard a story of government document at the time you could buy sugar at the little local store, um, you know, like kind of wrapped in a cone of a government document. So it's just like recycled paper essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, so with all of this, all of these materials being destroyed, it was just completely assumed that, well, certainly the national range agency that was, um, the environment ministry essentially um, had been looted and you know met that same fate, um, but in reality, uh, Dr. Watson went to the National Range Agency at great personal risk. You know, crossing Mogadishu at that time to get into um, a government agency that was you know had been was being targeted by rebels. Um, this was quite quite a risky maneuver. And he eventually managed to get all of that, well, he got it out of Mogadishu, which is quite a feat in and of itself. But eventually he brought it to the UK um, and left it with one of his most trusted researcher who was based in the UK, UK by that point. And it's been sitting in her attic. And, you know, I, I don't know what his like sort of long-term ambition was for that material. Um, my guess is to eventually ensure that it was, you know, utilized by the Somali people, because it is like an incredible baseline survey, essentially, of, of, uh, that we can use today to look at how the environment changes. Um, but I think that, you know, he hadn't, it was sitting in this attic and, and then in 2008, when he was kidnapped, um, yeah, that's when it was just sort of forgotten about in this so. attic. And then, so how did you come to to learn that this store was was stuck in an attic in the English countryside? <laughs> right. So I had been um, talking to a, a good friend of mine in Nairobi who was working on uh, a really interesting 
sort of environmental survey in its own way um, in Somalia with the UN with UNDP, the development program. And he um, he was talking to me about how they were doing all of these interviews with elders all across the country um, as to inform what was called their national adaptation program. And lots of developing countries have these, which essentially looks at how the country is being affected by climate change and then sort of compiles the wisdom of like, how are people coping with climate change? Like what are the sort of adaptations people are already doing and like, how can those be uh, sort of ramped up or improved upon? So basically this friend of mine um, was just telling me about this interesting work they were doing and talking to all of these elders, which seemed so intriguing. Like how smart is it? It really is so smart to like speak, go to the elders who have been surviving in these incredibly challenging environmental conditions in Somalia. It's not like Somalia was ever like a perfectly lush and verdant area um, and find out how they're coping with climate change. So in the course of like considering how I might write a story about utilizing that information, um, I learned that there was this huge collection of, at the time I was just told it was photographs um, in, in the UK that had been compiled um, by a Dr. Murray Watson. And so I got in touch with um, the researcher he had left all of this material with, and she was incredibly generous and said, you know, I'm happy to show it to you whenever you want to come take a look. So I made a trip to the UK and went and visited her and was just completely blown away by um, the amount of the material, the quality of the material. Um, I mean, I say it's been it's like sitting in her attic, but like, it, like very like impeccably kept like in these boxes. And, um, you know, sh this is of great value to her, sentimental value, um, especially after her dear friend was kidnapped. But, you know, she was actually one of the people who helped work on the land survey in the 80s, and she got her PhD doing this research. So, um, yeah, it was just so an incredible wealth of information. What what does the information contained in that land survey from the 80s and, and before tell you about the nexus between climate change and conflict in Somalia? So it is a really valuable baseline survey. And frankly, as I was going through the field notes, I don't have a whole lot of use for like the, all of the details of like the, the composition of the soil. But for a scientist who's looking at environmental issues in Somalia today, this is gold. I mean, this is like, you know, a lot of, I actually was connected to um, a couple, a team of scientists and researchers in the UK who actually are doing work on climate change and adaptation and environmental degradation in Somalia. And as actually sort of before I had told them fully what I was working on, they were lamenting the fact that there's just, there's nothing to really compare it to. So you can collect ample data today about what the, what the, land looks like but if you don't have anything to compare it to then you're a, a bit at a loss right so you don't know like how climate change has manifested itself in any specific right. like town or or village and region like what tree species used to be there that are no longer right. there that sort of thing exactly yeah exactly and so uh, so that's you know it's 
it really is kind of, I think, in the hands of like scientists at this point to to utilize that material. And you know, the, the final scene of my story for foreign policy talks about this um, man, Dr. Abdi Rizak Ali, who has in mind to work with the seed bank in Nairobi to reintroduce some of these indigenous species of tree, especially, and back to Somalia that have have either been cut down for charcoal use, which is a huge problem, or they've, uh, you know, the environment has changed, so they don't, they're not surviving in those climates anymore. But basically, you know, one of the challenges that he was up against was that, you know, how do you start thinking about what to plant in an area if you, there's nothing, you're like looking at sort of a a wasteland kind of um, visually, but then, but you know that there used to be um, vegetation. And so like using this land survey, it's a starting point. And like, obviously a lot of things like, you know, if the soil composition has changed so dramatically, then reintroducing the species that were there in the seventies is not going to do you a whole lot of good, but it's allowed. It's like, it's like everyone just kept saying like, it's a place to start, you know, it's like, it's, we don't know, maybe, maybe it, you know, maybe it won't turn into something incredibly valuable, but it's like, I think that there's something to work with now. Um, and I think, you know, another part that I, I feel like is, was clear to me as, especially as I was talking to the Somali researchers, um, you know, over many, many months of working on the story and seeing them in Somalia and Nairobi and, you know, seeing their reaction when I mentioned to them that the survey still exists. And um, it, there's also like a really like a deeply symbolic value to it. Like if you've come from a country where you have lost everything, like you can't even maybe you haven't even wanted to set foot there again. And now you realize that there's actually this like all of these photographs of, from many years ago that you just you thought never existed. It's like the sense of history and and sort of like is really really powerful to people, and, and it, the, the the photos that accompany your piece are are pretty stunning. Having superimposed the photos from the eighties against photos taken from the same location today, I mean, it's a dramatic demonstration of the effects of of climate change and probably also conflict to the right. landscape of Somalia. Absolutely, and I think you know, I, probably the most clear cut connection between like environmental issues and conflict is the charcoal trade. And, you know, there are some, there are some clips in our film and also in, I think you can see in some of the photographs too, just like so many of the trees have been cut down and what, and the trees are being cut down so that they can be produced so that they can produce charcoal that then can be used um, off like the sales of charcoal that's happening right now in Somalia, um, especially export, any exports of charcoal from Somalia are, um, typically tied to militancy mm -hmm. because there is a ban on charcoal export from Somalia and so, and has been for several years. So really like the charcoal trade that continues today is financing Al-Shabaab and has, you know, to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. And so if you look at how that can directly then fuels extremism and the rise of militancy in Somalia. It's, you know, it's a direct connection. And as one of, as the climate, um, as the environment minister said to me, um, very powerfully when I interviewed him, you know, this is, it's, it's environmental issues and, and the climate, there's this the climate conflict nexus that we're really concerned about because it's the real catch 22 for our country. We're already facing so many security concerns, but at the same time, like those security concerns are being exacerbated by the environmental 
challenges we face. And it's this, you know, how can you begin to address them if you can't, you know, access these areas, you can't begin to start planting trees or, or, you know, try to, um, to cut off the, the, the charcoal trade in some of these areas because they're completely inaccessible. Um, and so yeah, I mean, it's it's almost as if I mean, based on on what I've read from from your reporting and and elsewhere, is that you know, climate change is making the conflict um, harder to solve, and the conflict is making climate change issues harder to solve, and they're exactly. kind of feeding off of each other in this death spiral um, that is affecting large parts of the country. Though it's probably fair to say that you know, Somali today is is in a lot better shape than it was just a, a few years ago. Um, True. so, yeah. so can, can you explain you? So, so we are speaking in early August and earlier this year, there were really the first national, not the first national elections, but important national elections that signaled a transfer of power in, in Somalia from one government to another, though it's the government's hold or control over a lot of parts of the country is, is still not, not quite there. So where are we sort of politically in, in Somalia today in terms of taking on these kind of twin threats of climate change and uh, the, the Al-Shabaab insurgency and other militant groups? Sure. So, yes, I think there there is definitely like a sense of promise at the moment, um, looking at the new government. Um, and I think that, you know, one of, there are a couple of things. So first of all, I would say, well, let me start with sort of the bad news, which is that um, the former environment minister, Buri Hamsa, who I mentioned in the piece, um, he he spoke very eloquently. He was like a very polished politician talking about, you know, needing to make a case to donors, international donors especially, to start working on environmental projects in Somalia because of their connection to security. Um, he was the one who talked about the climate conflict nexus. Um, and then quite, you know, he and he was also saying it's really challenging because donors can't come here yet. And they say, you know, get your security issues under control, and then we'll talk. Um, and, and I think that, you know, talking to him, you could see, um, you could, you got the sense that he, he was kind of in this a bit alone. I mean, he works for the federal government. And one of the things in Somalia was, is that there are these um, autonomous regions. So the federal government is the southern, south central part of the country that has the most security issues at the moment. Um, and this environment minister was like sort of a, he was called a state minister, which means he doesn't have a full team with him. He doesn't have a full ministry. His office was like within the prime minister's office. So while he was quite, he was very passionate, he was very eloquent. He, you got the sense he wasn't, his portfolio wasn't a priority, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so that was quite striking in our interview. And then a month after we spoke, he himself died in a terrorist attack by Al-Shabaab in Mogadishu. So you kind of feel like, wow, okay, this climate conflict nexus issue is like, it's dire. And it's like, it, like that catch-22 we just talked about. <clears throat> At the same time, I would say that the election definitely has given people hope. And then if you look at some of the other parts of Somalia, so in particular Puntland, um, which is like the northeastern corner of the country, and Somaliland in the north, are both quite stable. And many, you know, there are certainly some security issues in both of those regions. But there's also quite a lot of interest in dealing with environmental issues at the moment. And what what I'm hearing from people 
Somalis who are working on environmental issues is that, you know, there are pockets and in some, you know, growing pockets of area that is safe and that can be where they can start trying these projects out. So, for instance, in Puntland, I went and saw um, this kind of like, they're calling them sand dams. It's like a way of, of uh, kind of funneling the water, the, the rain when it does fall so that it can actually be utilized and not just create like very destructive erosion. And, you know, there are, these are still really small scale projects and I, I don't want to overstate it and say like, you know, this is not like a very rosy picture, but it also, you know, you can see some promise in these types of projects, even if they're small scale and like, you know, people are excited to get these projects underway and see if they can um, prove them to be useful. And then as the security, the safe pockets expand, you know, trying them out in other regions. So, yeah, a positive and ne- lots of negatives, but progress for sure. What One interesting aspect of the kind of climate conflict nexus that I didn't fully appreciate until uh, reading your piece was not the Al-Shabaab insurgency part of things, but how climate change is exacerbating local conflicts, very local conflicts over over land. Um, Can you tell the story of that nomad turned farmer who got into like a a conflict with his neighbor and and how that conflicts like that are are affecting Somali politics and, and security issues? Sure. So what happened in this little village, um, not really so much a village, just like a kind of cluster of houses. Um, so what happened was that there, you know, one of the tactics that people are using to survive um, rather than just roaming around on sort of their migratory routes that they follow every year in search of water and pastures, people have decided they need to settle. So, or they at least need to settle for part of the year and cultivate some pasture land for their animals so that they've got something to depend on if the rains don't come this year, for example. So what happened in this little town called Ainabo was that you had a a community that used to be they were all nomads, um, you know, at least a generation back, but now they've kind of settled to some extent and are, are kind of like, they call them agro-pastoralists in that area. Um, they're like farmers and still do some work as nomads. But what happened here was that uh, a, a guy had been cultivating pasture land for his animals, and then one of the more traditional nomad-type folks came back with his animals who were then on the brink of starvation and dehydration. Um, But it was this, you know, it's a real dilemma. So like this guy has been keeping this pasture for his animals, sort of like thinking ahead to this possibility of drought. And then a, a guy arrives with his animals who will die if they don't have access to this land, to this uh, grass. And so they got into a conflict over it. And it, it was actually like, I understood from a couple of people I talked to in that region that like between the two men themselves, they had actually been like kind of talking and maybe we're going to work it out, but we're being kind of egged on by their family members who were saying, no, like you can't give him access to this. It's ours and our animals will die if you give give it to him. Where And on the other side saying, our animals like are imminently going to die. Like you have to force him to give up his land. And so anyway, in the course of over the course of several weeks, things escalated and eventually one guy ambushed the other. And they they actually there was a gun battle between them and 
um, one of them was killed. And, and, and I mean, this sounds just like a, a regular sort of neighbor dispute turned, you know, deadly, which could happen, you know, anywhere sure. in the world over, over any region it happens all the time. But like, why is this particularly important and significant, um, uh, story to, to sort of include in, in, in a package like yours about conflict and climate in Somalia? Like, what does this tell you deeper about, about fractures and fissures in, in Somali society and how climate change is, is contributing to that? Right. I mean, I think that in the Somalia context, you know, we, for people familiar with Somalia, one of the things we talk about a lot there is clan conflict. And so one of the things that was quite striking to me is that, you know, we were in this little town about two weeks after this murder had taken place. And the cousins of the guy who was, uh, who was killed had gone off looking for the shooter because he had fled. And everyone was saying, like, if they don't catch this guy, like, they'll catch it, if they catch him, he will be killed and like sort of it'll end there. If they don't catch him, then there someone else from his family will be killed in retaliation and that will spark a cycle of violence. And so as we were standing there talking to people, it struck me that like, you know, this is the kind of thing that we could come back here 20 years from now and someone would say, oh, you know, this area has been caught up in a cycle of clan violence for many, many years. And not mention the environmental underpinnings of it. You know, it's something that like, it could easily be just chalked up to clan violence in, um, you know, a couple of decades. And so we see that playing out across the country. And of course, it has suddenly has a lot of significance. I think that you're right, though, too. I mean, I think that when it comes to climate change reporting, there's something really, like, viscerally, it's scary for, you know, to think about is like, resources, getting to a point where resources are so scarce that people are willing to kill each other over it. And I think that that's why it was also quite um, moving as a story to include in this package, because, you know, these are just two people and actually they're they have some cousins in, uh, in in common. So, you know, these are not just like total strangers, but they were pushed to desperation. And this is what unfolded. Uh, so wh- where do you think we're, we're headed in, in Somalia in terms of like the climate conflict nexus? I mean, the, the Shabab insurgency is still raging, though it's a bit more muted than it was a few years ago. But uh, is it is it still just kind of like what what's the trajectory i should say of that nexus that that you describe in in your in your pieces i do feel like there's some traction behind environmental issues a lot of um organizations working there are are starting projects looking at how to help people adapt um you know adapt is kind of adaptation is a is really a a buzzword at the moment, but I think it's, it's like quite relevant because like these are issues that are not going to improve on their own. So people need to like, people need to think through how their lifestyle is going to need to fundamentally change because being a nomad, it just may not be feasible anymore. And at the same time, trying to settle in an area and, you know, become a farmer is also you know, if that's something you've never done before, it's maybe not viable either. So I think that um, I think that there there's some traction on environmental projects at the moment. I would say certainly everyone's sort of main concern remains the security cons- considerations, and rightly so. I mean, there certainly are um, you know there are 
there are some safe pockets of the country, but there are still large swaths of the country that are controlled by al-Shabaab. And, you know, I think even the piracy issue, which has been um, since 2012, has really been um, under control in terms of, uh, you know, there haven't been any attacks. Um, But a lot of these, the underpinnings of why these conflicts crop up, which is the environment, is is often not being dealt with. So in, on the piracy question, for example, like one of the things that I I talked about in a companion piece, I'm not sure if you saw it, but um, it was published by Foreign Policy Online um, called The Making of a Climate Outlaw, which I thought was a smart headline by my editor. Um, but anyway, so, you know, the underpinnings of, of piracy are environmental issues as well. And and yet the way that we've tackled, the international community has tackled the piracy question is to have these navies patrolling um, out in the Gulf of Aden. And, you know, that's working for now. But as soon as those, as soon as that deterrent isn't there, um, you know, the piracy issue certainly could come back because it's not it's not like people have just like given up on this entirely. It's it's a way of life being a fisherman in Somalia. And um, if that's not viable, of course, people will find a way to provide for their families. Uh, well, Laura, thank you so much for your time and, and for your reporting. These these pieces were, were fantastic. Thank you so much. I appreciate you highlighting them. Yeah, I'll, I'll, and I'll post a link to them on the website. Thank you. Okay, cool. Take care. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Laura. That was great. That was fascinating. Hey, if you're new to the podcast and you're still listening, let me recommend that you go to visit our archives. We have tons of interviews, over 200 at this point, which more or less are evergreen. You can listen to them at at any time. They are not necessarily news pegs, particularly the ones with the numbers next to them. Those are personal profiles of people who have led interesting careers in foreign affairs and world affairs and foreign policy. Go check those out. Go search for a name you don't recognize or someone you don't recognize and learn their story. It's, uh, It's a good resource. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.